It is great as we sing that song to realize that we're on the winning side, <laughs> that God is up to good things in and through His church. And we turn, uh, turn this uh, morning to the last section of uh, Romans chapter 11, I'm picking up at verse 33. Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We come today to the last section of Romans chapters 1 through 11. And through these last uh, many months... We have seen what God does. We have seen what God is like. We have seen that God is holy, 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 full of righteousness, deserving of the worship and trust of all mankind. And we were introduced in the first chapter to the fact that God is a God also of wrath. And that is appropriate. It is fully appropriate for God to be full of wrath against those who know Him but do not worship Him. People who know that He exists, they know something of His character, but they refuse to worship. It is amazing that God resolves the problem of our lack of righteousness by giving us His own righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ. All whom He has called, all whom He has elected, He gives that righteousness. We've also seen in just the last couple of chapters here in this section in Romans that God has a plan. It's an interesting plan. A plan to save the world, to save many, the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Jews In this weird fashion, he would have Jews reject the faith, reject the Lord Jesus Christ, so that then he would bring the gospel to the Gentiles who would hear and would respond. The Jews' failure bringing salvation to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles themselves, us, we are believing in Jesus, believing in the gift that God has given, the gift of righteousness in His Son. And our enjoyment of Him actually then makes Israel jealous. That's His plan. That's the mystery that is unfolded uh, in chapter 11. Now, we will start next week with the beginning of of the second major section, beginning in chapter 12, verses 1 and following. 
and we will read about uh, the, uh, Paul's appeal to us uh, by the mercies of God to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That's the response of grace. And we'll have several chapters that are unfolding how we are to live. But we're going to stop today with the Apostle and simply marvel and wonder at who God is. What He has done. What His plans are for us. His kindness to us. His wisdom. His knowledge. We open up this section then. I'll begin, uh, read again verses 33 in the first part of 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The apostle would have us stand up and, and, and honor God simply for who He is here. The depth of His riches. First of all, the depth of His riches. The depth of His wealth. That it is abundant and beyond all imagination and ability to grasp. And that abundance of His mercy is described in earlier chapters in this book as, as shown giving us mercy. The abundance of his wealth, rather, is that it giving us mercy. It is God's kindness to us. He knows our need. He knows that we're without any hope without him. He knows that at times we're even stubborn in our blindness. But this God is not a stingy, wealthy person. You've seen people like that, haven't you? People with a lot of resources, a lot of money, but all they do is cling to it and clutch it themselves. God is not like that. He is overflowing in His riches. He is generous in His riches. Several places throughout the book of of Romans describe what that is like. First of all, it is wealth to the very, very poor. It is wealth to the poverty-stricken. We see in chapter in chapter two, uh, chapter two the riches of his kindness come endlessly to those who are who are poor, to those who need to repent, to those who are sinners. God is rich in mercy to the poor. Uh, secondly, he is rich in mercy to the desperate. I call out to you because there's no one else for me to turn to. And that includes Jew and Gentile, chapter 10 says. But he gives, he gives freely to those who are desperate. Is anyone desperate here today? There is mercy from heaven. We also see the riches of God's mercy described in Romans 9. But it is described in terms of the wrath of God that is on unbelievers. And one of the reasons God displays wrath to unbelievers is that you and I would grasp His mercy even more fully. That's the plan of God, the wisdom of God. To show us His wealth, to show us the vastness and the depth of his, of his riches. And yet, and yet, we can look at our problems, we can look at the things we struggle with in our lives, we can look at our frustrations, we can look at, we can look at stuff here. 
and we lose sight of the glory of God and we wonder, could it really be as vast and, and well, could he really be as vast and wealthy as that? Is that possible? Especially when we see our own repeated sins and we wonder, we begin to doubt that mercy and we may even suspect that he is withholding kindness from us until we pick up our game just a little bit. Well, Gerhardus Voss uh, made this statement that I think, I think, and follow this closely, the best argument that God won't stop loving us, the best argument that God won't stop loving us is that he never began. Do you hear that? There was never a time that he didn't have mercy and love us. So we need not doubt his wealth and his riches. You can also question the depth of his wisdom and knowledge. God's knowledge is infinite. God's knowledge is exhaustive. That is, he knows all things fully in the depths of their reality. He knows molecular structure. He knows the atomic, uh, he knows the, the workings of the atom. He knows all things. God can handle nuclear physics. He knows all things. But his wisdom also is, is, is deep. His wisdom whereby he arranges all things in the best possible way for his glory. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? How unsearchable his judgments? How inscrutable his ways? What Paul is saying here is no one else could arrange the world and, and, and put things together the way God has for his glory. We, we wade around in this life in a little kiddie pool. And, and yet God dwells in, in Mariana Trench, that deepest part in the Pacific Ocean. We read earlier, my thoughts are not your thoughts, they're above your thoughts. My ways are above your ways. God's grace is inscrutable. That means it's hard. We can't fully grasp it. We can't understand it fully. This is is one part. Listen, this is what Paul has said. People who are looking to get saved, people who are looking to get saved will not be saved. They're looking on their own terms to, to work up God's righteousness on their own. He said they're the ones that God passes by. That's the Israel nation as a whole. And what does God do? He looks around for people who don't want to be saved. And he rescues them and he brings them into the kingdom. People who are not seeking God will find him. Chapter 10, verse 20. And you want to advise God on who he will save? You want to question him and challenge his justice? How can he find fault with those who resist his will was one of the questions that Paul came up to. And we have to respond to that. Really? The the pot is asking the potter, why is he doing these things? We find his electing grace strange sometimes. Or this weird word, inscrutable. We can't figure it out. And yet the point of it all here is that God will not share his mercy. God will not share his glory 
God will not share his glory with anyone. His ways are often beyond our knowledge. And you may be sitting here this morning, and as you think of these things, you might be saying, because of the things going on in your life, why me? Why this? Why now? Why are things happening in my life the way they are? This has been a struggle of mine over the past few weeks. I have not been affected by the death of anyone outside of my own immediate family as much as I have been about the passing of my friend David. It is, to me, inscrutable. I can't figure it out. The guy was amazing, and what he did for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was amazing. No other person that I can think of has come up, not only come up with ideas, but been able to implement them so that people across the denomination are affected and blessed. He had unique gifts and made unique contributions. It was so encouraging to hear family members yesterday speak of this with acknowledging the pain of his loss, but at the same time saying that God is still good and God knows what he's doing. And we have to accept that. Time the turns in your life. Why me? Why this? Why now? This, uh, this mystery that Paul is unfolding in, in Romans 11 is, is, is most likely the, the, the way that he is particularly applying this passage. Who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who is um, God's ways are unsearchable and, and so forth. Uh, this is the big, the big reveal that, uh, that is going on here is how God will save many Jews and Gentiles. We've gone over this before, but I want you to get this. God uses the sins of the Jewish people to save the Gentiles. And then God uses the faith of the Gentiles to save the Jews. God wins Jews through the envy of grace as they see the beauty in Gentiles. Now, we might look at that and we might say to God, that's your plan? (laughs) That's how you're going to save the world? Making some reject it so that others will accept it and then the first group will accept it again? That seems strange. It seems inscrutable and unsearchable. We would never think to do that. But God often uses the sins of some to get at the hearts of others. Do you hear what I'm saying? He often uses the sins of some to get to the hearts of of others. That is still God's pattern for us. All of us, for example, all of us receive evil from other people. All of us are in situations where where people have 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 wrongly treated us. Whether it's been an unkind word or some other form of mistreatment, we can readily recognize where we have been sinned against. And what is our impulse? Our, our common impulse is, how are we going to make them pay? How are we going to get back at them? What does God say? What is his big idea? What is his good idea here? He says, overcome evil with good. 
And we say, that's your plan? (laughs) I want to do that. (laughs) But that's his plan. What humbles people, after all? What humbles those people that might might even be harming you right at this moment? What humbles them? It's oftentimes seeing the humility in people like you and me. God has overcome your evil with costly good. Cross-shaped good. He's overcome your evil. And he calls you to be useful, useful to him. Aided by the Spirit to bring about change in the people around us. Peter picks up on this very theme in his epistle, chapter 3. Peter, uh, Peter says, Wives, um, how are you supposed to win over an unbelieving husband? And when we hear unbelieving husband, certainly we think of a husband who is not a believer, not a part of the church, he's outside of Christ. But we could also think, bring it in a little bit more to ourselves, wives, how do you win over um, a, uh, an obnoxious husband? Um, how do you win over a cantankerous husband? How do you win over a selfish husband? How do you communicate with a husband who's misbehaving, not, not conducting himself well? What is your instinct? Drill into him until he gets it and he changes. Drill down until you can get at him, get at his heart. What does Peter say? He says overcome evil with good using this word. He says without a word, but with respect and with pure motives. Live before your husband. And we might say, that's your plan? That is the plan. Win him over with a gracious attitude. Ladies, I will always say this with a, with a, a caveat here. If you are undergoing abuse, if women anywhere we see are undergoing abuse in a relationship, God's plan also includes having those who are or in, 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 uh, leaders in government and leaders in the church to come alongside that woman and to help. To help to be an advocate, to speak, to challenge, to correct. Well, secondly, and, and less, uh, less exhaustively here, um, the second point in, in verse 35, this is picking up on, remember that first phrase in, in 33, oh, the depth of the riches, the depth of the riches. Verse 35 is picking up on that. Or who has, uh, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Uh, that we're back to God's wealth here, and we have to recognize, and we do recognize, that paying God back runs deep in our hearts, doesn't it? Paying God back runs deep in our hearts. Our, our obedience, we feel often, will win a bit of a reward. Our obedience uh, will win a favor or two from God and put him in our debt. Have you ever heard someone say this? I missed my quiet time this morning. Therefore, my day has been a mess. Therefore, God has put obstacles in my day out of retribution or some kind of punishment to get my attention. Does God work that way? You miss your your quiet time so he brings out the howitzer? Is that how it works? And yet we feel that there's a direct cause and effect. If I'm obedient to God, I'll get his cooperation. If I'm obedient to God, I'll get his mercy. 
when in fact it is the humble heart confessing his sin that gets that mercy from God. Our behavior does not move the needle of God's mercy. Your good works don't indebt him to you to reward you. He doesn't need your gifts. Your works don't earn him privilege. That's exactly what this is. Who has given a gift to him that somehow God now must repay him? God owes you. I I certainly appreciate the idea of seeking to encourage responsibility in people. And we tried to raise our kids that way, to be responsible for themselves and to take care of, take care of, do what they're supposed to do and all of that. Um, and, and at one point, I don't, don't remember the circumstances here, but Kirk owed me a little bit of money. And, um, he was very young at this time. And, and he said to me one day, he said, Dad, can I borrow a nickel? And, um, I said, okay. I, I sure, um, but what's it for? And he said, I want to pay you back. How can we offer something to God that he hasn't first given us? Remember what Voss said, there was never a time when he didn't love us. Well, what do you do with this? What do you do with this? We're going to open up uh, chapter 12. We're going to start there next week, Lord willing, and it's going to begin uh, five chapters of what it means to live as a Christian. And we will see that it is all by the mercies of God, not for the mercies of God. Do you see that? Live by the mercies of God, not for God's mercy. Listen listen to this from C.S. Lewis. The real test of being in the presence of God, and that's what we're seeking to do now, to live under the light of God's revealed truth about his, his, his wisdom, his knowledge, and the wealth of his mercy. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. And Lewis says it is better to forget about yourself altogether. You see God and you forget about yourself. That we are saved by his mercy through Jesus' sacrifice. So, of course, we live lives of mercy. Of course, we are living sacrifices in particular for people who don't deserve it. That makes sense in light of what God has done for us. You see, then, it is all about God's glory. Look look with me again now at verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. It's all about God. It's all about his glory. This verse answers really three questions. First of all, where does it all come from? Where does it all come from? For from him are all things. From him are all things. Your life, your family, um, his gifts to you, the providences that he's given to you in your life, they are all 
from his hand. They're challenging. The lives that each one of us has been given is challenging to continue the race. It's tough. But we remember all things are from him. So you can do nothing apart from him, but you can do all things through him. From him are all things. Well, the second question that is answered in this verse is, well, then how do, good, how do things come to happen? How do things happen? Through him are all things. Through him. God pours out his goodness uh, on us. Not only does he uh, arrange our lives and give us the gifts that we need to fulfill his purposes and our place, but he also pours out the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5, listen to this. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. You have the endless supply of God's grace. Even as he orchestrates every event in your life, you have the endless supply of grace and the love of God poured out by the Holy Spirit. Well, this verse also then answers this third question. Why do things happen the way they do? To him are all things. Why is this so significant? Even your suffering makes sense. To him, think of it, to him are all things. Your spirit, the Spirit is growing you up. You're able to give God glory even in suffering. You are able to act with poise even under pressure. You are growing in human maturity in this downward path of humility as you are being absorbed with the beauty of God. Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. That's what each one of us says as a result of this passage. God increases. He has increased to the point where in Jesus I am able, therefore, to decrease myself, to live for his glory. Let's pray.